A Bite of Stars, A Slug of Time and Thou. This week, Beyond the Reach of Storms by Don Malcolm. Out at the edge of the Milky Way, where stars are lonely beachcombers on the shore of an unimaginable sea of space, stretching two million light years to the next island of light, they found the strange sun. After Team 31 had landed into a dilemma with three horns on Palmyra, Captain Krishna Rang, commanding the survey ship Starfire, recalled all six planetary exploration teams to Mero for a rest before completing their part of the survey and returning to Earth. Rang had called in the six team leaders for a series of conferences with the Starfire's scientific advisors, and the exchange of ideas, discoveries, and inventions began. As agreed, when the survey master plan had been formulated on Earth, each mothership, there were 20 in all, carrying a total of 120 preliminary survey teams and the same number of PETs, would complete its allotted part by making a general sweep in whatever sector of the galaxy it happened to be. The Starfire's segment lay along the spiral arm which had given birth to the sun eons before. That is how they came upon the star. It was evident, even from a long way out, that the star was different from the average because of the shape as seen in the telescopes. Long, like a sausage. Measurements gave the length as a million miles by some 250,000 miles thick. There were no planets, in itself not too unusual. Good morning, gentlemen, Captain Rang said, smiling faintly at his own exactitude. He drew on the cigar. Lieutenant King tells me, in a somewhat disgruntled manner, that the star has a hole in the middle. Coleman gave Bond a hefty prod, and the Canadian answered, It's true, sir. I was making routine observations when I made the discovery. Very interesting indeed, Dr. Bond. May I see it, please? Certainly, Captain. Bond adjusted the telescope as Rang asked Coleman, Is there anything else peculiar about it, Dr. Coleman? Not that's been noticed so far, sir. Coleman lifted some notes. It's a spectroclass G7 with a diameter of about a million miles. I'd hazard a guess and say that the hole is at least half a million miles in diameter. Accurate figures will be available once methodical observations are started. Thank you. Rang turned to Dave Hurd. Will you arrange the program of observations, please? Hurd nodded as Bond said, Ready now, Captain. By 0500, the Starfire was in her computed orbit, with a mean radius of 30 million miles. A cometary-type orbit had been considered, but discarded. The selected orbit, perpendicular to the plane of the rotation of the star, allowed plenty of time for detailed observations to be made. The program started at 1700, and it wasn't long before two of the surprises predicted by Dave Hurd turned up. The first was the discovery of an intense magnetic field, not surrounding the star, but actually in the hole. This discovery was set aside for further study. It was the second discovery that set the astronomers wondering what was out there. Hurd hunched in his seat, looking like a thinned-down version of some video actor trying to think himself into the part of the hunchback. The star is unlike any other so far discovered, he said in a voice with a rusty quality to it. It has, as you know, a hole in the middle, and as Kurt has pointed out, such a star probably isn't stable. One of Kurt's assistants, Ronnie Coleman, raised the interesting question that if we assume, as I think we can, the star to be of the same age order as the sun, what's been happening to it for the past few thousand million years? 
That is a question we may never answer. We can only continue the program of observations and deduce what we can from the data. He moved in his chair as if easing a vague pain. The third and possibly most puzzling discovery concerns what you have all seen in the photographs, a field of stars which do not belong to the galaxy, visible through the hole in the star. On the tenth day, when the hole was only a hundred thousand miles in diameter, Captain Rang received a deputation of the twelve team leaders. Rang was slightly surprised to see Chaplains Macaulay and de Ribera tagging along like guardian angels. He hid his surprise behind a cloud of smoke. Captain Rang greeted them politely and sat back, his dark face expressionless as they seated themselves. I understand that you wanted to see me, gentlemen, on a matter of great importance. He waited, his cigar poised. Senior team leader Matthew Brady of Team 31 rubbed his comical potato-shaped nose and said, I've been elected spokesman, Captain, probably in deference to my advancing years for no other reason. They smiled briefly. Brady went on, As you know, Captain, this show has so far been pretty well confined to the astronomical staffs. The rest of us have been kicking our heels on what I heard someone describe as a trip round the bay. You've all been having a much-needed rest, Captain Rang amended gently, one that your men, especially senior team leader, worthily earned. Brady coiled a forefinger round his nose. Well, that's just it, sir, he gestured to the other leaders. We feel there's still work to be done. Rang was abruptly at the peak of his attention. Uncannily, he sensed what was coming. Go on. There are stars visible through the hole from either side. We've discussed it among ourselves and with the chaplains, and we think teams should be sent through the hole before it closes. Rang's eyes maintained their steady scrutiny of Brady. He disposed of his cigar stub and said, Would you care to outline the reasons behind this request, please? He preferred to let Brady state his case fully before making a decision. Brady glanced at Chaplain Macaulay, who nodded faintly, as if in encouragement, then continued, It seems to us that the scientific aspects of the star have been magnified to an extent where all other considerations have been ignored. No one has stopped to ask why the star is there and why it is acting in such a manner. We think the star has been created as a gateway to other areas of space. Rang frowned slightly and selected a cigar. That implies intelligence of a very high order indeed, Brady answered briskly. We think that intelligence exists, Captain. It's our duty to try to contact the intelligence by sending a small team through either side of the hole. But the hole is closing. The men would never be able to get back. Team 31 came back from Palmyra, sir, Brady argued, even though it was a week late. There was no levity in his voice. He went on. If there is an intelligence behind the strange star, there would be no purpose in arranging opportunities if the representative of questing races couldn't reestablish contact with their own people. That is why we are convinced there is some way back. Rang was extremely pensive. He laid his unlit cigar on the desk. He asked at length, Is this the desire of you all? His dark eyes swept over them, probing for signs of withdrawal. He found none. Everyone met his stare resolutely. I can answer for us all. Yes, Brady replied, rubbing his nose. Rang changed his tack. Chaplains Macaulay de Ribera, what stake have you in this? Manuel de Ribera, his fine Spanish features filmed with sweat, answered in soft, sun-nurtured tones. We have God's stake, Captain. This intelligence, for all it has achieved a truly advanced technology, may not know God, and it is our wish 
to go through the hole just in case. Wouldn't you think, Rang countered, that a race so advanced as to be able to create a star as a gateway to other space would also be extremely sophisticated in religious matters? Macaulay, Team 31's shrewd chaplain, shook his head as if to say to Rang, you won't get away with that one. Your question is loaded, Captain. There were a great many pagan civilizations on Earth. Rang allowed himself a small smile, and Macaulay returned it. I must yield, it seems, the captain conceded. Although I fear I shall regret my decision. What plan had you in mind, Senior Team Leader Brady? He glanced at his companions before answering. There are fourteen of us here. We will divide into two teams of seven, and each one will go through the hole using unarmed scout ships. Unarmed? Is that sensible? Macaulay, as he replied, sounded very patient, but Rang knew the chaplain of old and took no offense. We must give evidence of our civilized status, Captain. Our hands must be empty. We must take the chance now. It might not come again for a thousand years. A thousand ages. Perhaps never. At 1610, both ships were gone. Observers saw the weird twisting as one of the scouts passed through the hole, followed by the magnification, the dwindling, and the disappearance. The personnel of the Starfire settled down to wait. The men aboard Brady's scout experienced nothing unusual as they passed through the hole. The ports of the ship were cleared, and they sought eagerly their first glimpse of this other space. Slowly they drew back, like seven puppets controlled by the same strings, and stood staring at each other pale and wordless. Outside the ship, no matter where they looked, there were no stars. The heavens on every quarter were totally devoid of light. What in God's name does it mean? Len Kitten of Team 32 asked Brady, catching him by the arms. What have you let us into? His voice was rising into a shriek, but quietened just as suddenly. He shivered uncontrollably and turned away from Brady, his questions forgotten. I feel cold, he murmured, half crooning the words to himself. In my soul. He sank down in a corner as Macaulay went to him. The chaplain said very softly, Can you explain the feeling, Len? Kitten's head kept jerking spasmodically, and his speech was slurred and fading. I feel as if my whole being has been stripped and exposed to all the evil in the universe. His shoulders began to shake, and tears rolled down his cheeks and splashed minutely on the deck. Macaulay looked appealingly at the ring of mute faces, finding no help. He started to pray, then realized in constricting terror that his effort was in vain, that he couldn't attain the correct attitude. His numbing mind, blackly encircled, resisted all attempts at prayer. Silently, he squatted beside Kitten and slid an arm around the man's shoulder. The others stood, strangely bereft of speech, exchanging stares that had in them the first glimmerings of black helplessness. The ship sped on through the darkness, and no one was aware of mounting acceleration. The feeling that had begun with Kitten and spread to Macaulay quickly engulfed the others. Each sat, cut off from his fellows, a focal point of evil. Brady's mind was a maelstrom of evil desires, thoughts, and intents. All the bad things he had ever done in his life crowded in upon him, each event fighting for premier place. His mind was like a hole, oozing with thick, suffocating mud which threatened to submerge his consciousness. Somewhere, in an unknowable part of his mind, something struggled to expand and almost succeeded, 
only to be smashed ruthlessly. He could see quite plainly his companions, but they were unreachable, enmeshed as he was in a web of absolute evil. It was with horror that he became aware of thoughts and images that were not his own. He found himself staring at Macaulay. The chaplain's face was contorted, as if in internal pain. Brady's mind at first shrank from the tenuous thoughts bubbling in Macaulay's mind and spilling into his own. The interchange built up, spread, until the minds of the seven men were as one. They had reached the nadir of existence. All sense of time and of life deserted the men as the tiny ship arrowed headlong through the enveloping darkness until at last they knew somehow that motion had ceased. Brady pulled himself to a port. Something demoniacal swelled and glowed within him as he gazed out on the face of the planet. The all-pervading color was a deep, smoky crimson. The ground immediately surrounding the ship was flat and rocky. A few hundred yards off on the port side lay what appeared to be the edge of a gully with pale, roseate steam or smoke eddying lazily from the fissure. Behind the gully rose a forest of gnarled, leafless trees like fingers grasping for paper money floating in a breeze. Farther off, black, red-tipped mountains with a curious bright haze behind them formed a jagged barrier to either limit of his vision. The hellish eye of a star glared down on the tortured landscape. There was no noise that he could detect, only an air of menace. He sank down from the port, quivering like a newly impaled shaft. His mind was rigid with fear and refused to form coherent thoughts. His companions lay around on the deck in various attitudes, wrapped up in their own tight worlds. A slight scraping noise, like a wind-blown leaf, caught his attention. He forced his head round in the direction of the noise. Both airlock doors stood wide open. The second scout, under the command of senior PST leader Colin McKenzie, passed through the hole without incident and broke into the other space. The ports of the ship were cleared and immediately the men staggered away, knuckling their eyes, seeking to escape from the blinding light entering the cabin. Gropingly, the covers were replaced. When they had recovered, about fifteen minutes later, Mackenzie placed a filter over a port and cautiously took a second look. The ship seemed to be traveling through a homogeneous, brilliant space, devoid of stars, planets, galaxies, or anything else. He risked moving the filter slightly and gazed out. The light didn't seem quite so bright now, but his eyes began to smart after five minutes, and he replaced the filter. Dunn, PET-29 leader, asked, what can you see, Colin? Not a thing except a uniform area of light stretching everywhere. Take a look for yourself if you want, but don't stay more than three minutes. It was then that de Ribera began to mutter to himself in his native Spanish. He's making a lot of references to God and to the infinite light, Mackenzie explained in answer to a question. That's as far as my Spanish goes. They stared at de Ribera's face, which had assumed an expression of such devotion and reverence as to be almost frightening. His eyes seemed to be fixed on something beyond the ship. As they watched, he went down on his knees, his palms spread upward, his face uplifted. Mackenzie fanned his hand before the chaplain's rapt face and got no response. Sean O'Connor, PST-32's fiery leader, who had been watching the Riberas very closely, suddenly went to his side and slid to his knees. Teach me, he insisted. Teach me! The chaplain's hand sought his and held it. He spoke no words. O'Connor's tall, heavy body jerked once, all over, 
that he passed under the same spell that held de Ribera. Despite themselves, the other men were drawn into the trance, and soon the seven knelt in a ring, holding hands, while their minds meshed in a purity and a goodness so absolute that it threatened to destroy them. Here, concentrated in a speeding sliver of metal, was the quintessence of what man had always sought and never attained. On, on the little ship surged, while, for the men aboard, time and space ceased to exist. At last, the scout came to rest. Mackenzie was the first to become aware of this. Crawling to a port, he looked out. The ship was on the most beautiful world he had ever seen. It had come down on a field of flowers whose colors might have been scooped from the hearts of the stars themselves. The field was like a palette, covered with a soft saffron yellow, strange amber gold, salmon, honey-streaked pink, deep cerise flared with silver, bright glowing black and dull bronze. The flowers crowded in a vast sweep to the edge of a valley that he could sense rather than see. To the left stood a copse of springy trees with leaves like feathers, while to the right rolled serene hills, soft with greens and browns, wreathed in a shifting luminescent haze. A yellow star shone in a clear summer blue sky. While he was gazing, enraptured by the tranquil beauty of the vista, he heard a sound. He turned. Both airlock doors stood wide open. Hello, you were just listening to excerpts from Beyond the Reach of Storms, a short story written by Donald Malcolm in 1964. With me to discuss it are my fellow hosts Mark Sinker and Martin Skidmore. Can one of you tell us how the story ends? Well, the two the two teams who've won one side have, have traveled through this sort of horror of evil, um, sharing each other's thoughts, and the other side have traveled through this... Um, brilliant journey of um light and good they land on a planet or the planet is described differently and they are greeted by a voice which which kind of says you know well done earth men you've passed our our clever test um and they're, and they're no longer uh, afflicted with these varying visions no no they're, they're they're suddenly they're back at themselves again and and the sense is that it you know the the beings that they've met or the being uh, were kind of playing with their their feelings and their emotions, and that they've passed some time kind of test. First of all, by finding the star with a hole in it, and then being prepared to travel through, mm-hmm. uh, surviving this this initiation of uh, emotion and philosophy, or whatever it is, and uh, and so they're offered the chance to become the guardians of the galaxy, yes. which which they very briefly say, "Are you sure we want to do this?" And then yeah. then. Except, and they go off with some box which will tell them the secrets of everything, providing they ask the right questions. Um, and the the beings, the higher beings that they've met, said it's going to be very, very hard indeed to work out how to, you know, frame these questions. Um, but luckily, it pops into their head without further ado, within about three paragraphs, how to start it, and uh, all is well. And then the story ends rather abruptly on the brink of them becoming guardians of the galaxy and it ends with them being given what as far as i can tell is basically wikipedia 
Um, so I'm assuming that any day now we're going to become <laughs> guardians of the galaxy since we have Wikipedia now. So, but, oh, sorry, um, sorry, sorry. Let me, let me just for the benefit of the, of, the, of the listeners who didn't get to hear the very end of the story. When you say they they get Wikipedia, well, at the, the, this, the this gift they box. are given is a box with all this knowledge in, and you ask the right questions, and it gives you the answers. Yeah, I mean, yeah. as far as I can see, that's Wikipedia. <laughs> or maybe ask Jeeves or something. Maybe it's Jeeves. I don't know. But um, we don't seem to be guardians of the galaxy just yet. But uh, I'm sure it's coming. Joel Malcolm is. By no means a well-known writer. These stories don't appear to have been collected. He seems to have been born in 1930, died young, 1975, wrote maybe 20 stories and, and a novel called The Iron Rain. What, what I was interested in, I think, relates to what I feel this series is about, which is this, this era of stories, I mean, and we've loosely said that the dates are sort of roughly 1935 to 1965, so it obviously fits in that. But it comes before this this change in the sensibility of the science fiction short story, which was known as the New Wave. And this this story was uh, published in a magazine called New Worlds, which became the kind of journal of the New Wave. Uh-huh. But subsequent to this. So the editor at the time of this, and he's also the editor of the collection this story was in, was uh, called John Carnell, who's mm. also known as Ted Carnell, rather confusingly. Um, and his successor was Michael Moorcock. Michael Moorcock is the sort of prophet of the new wave as a writer and as an editor. And the magazine took a much more uh, sort of broader um, approach to what was in but what I think is interesting about this story is it's it's right on the cusp of this happening but it really belongs to the past mm-hmm. and so the, there was some sort of crossover but the way Moorcock took the magazine it was very controversial for there's a particular series of stories where there were actually questions asked in parliament they were considered so rude but prior to this the way Carnell was writing, and I think the way Don Malcolm is writing, it, it's 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 much more of a sort of old school feel to it. And I hadn't really remembered very clearly the amount of business that there is, which I, I think has been somewhat edited out in your reading of yeah. the sort of chat on ship, somewhat as if it's a kind of naval novel, really, or a wartime novel of a company of men with all their male bonhomie and and. And it, yeah, I mean, I think it pulls a little. You I think know. all of us would be shocked if we found out that Donald Malcolm wasn't in the Navy at or, some point. or didn't have or, family or, in or it, family, yeah, or yeah. something like that. He was born in 1930, apparently, so mm-hmm. <clears throat> national service. Um, unless, as I was saying earlier, science fiction writing was a protected profession or something, which I doubt if it was, or health reasons kept him out. He must have been in there. Uh-huh. So, yes, yeah, so I expect so. Whether that will have seen Bilko or the Army game or something, so I'm sure he was an expert on it one way or another. <laughs> yeah. Now, Martin, this, I mean, that, this banter, this all-male environment, yes. um, a lot of which, as Mark said, I edited out of my reading of the story, um, you know, it's all clearly lifted directly from the military. And, yeah. um, and it has this naval model in common with a lot of other uh, science fiction yeah. and space stories of the time. Star Trek is Star one Trek, obvious yeah. point. Well, now, what, what date does Star Trek? Is 65? Is it's that? about that. It would yeah, be, it's yeah, slightly it's after this. Yeah. But this is, I mean, this story, rereading it, it does very much remind me of yeah. a Star Trek story. Right. Just the, the, sh- the general shape of it rather than the particular kind of tone of it. You wouldn't have to do a lot of work to transpose it into a Star Trek episode. My question for for you guys is what happened to this kind of story, this kind of naval-based space exploration story? 
Well, I'm not sure if it's really gone away in that we've had um, Star Trek and Star Trek Next Generation and Star Trek Enterprise and all the rest of it, which obviously carry on the same things. Mm. Um, but um, I th- it, that you, was the age of national yeah. service. This isn't, you know. Do you feel, I mean, I, I, I get a sense that what happened is that essentially television happened and film happened and that... And also the new wave happened, and so that yeah. the the literature, the literary side of it, and the way n- stories went, was towards a slightly more, perhaps more demanding territory. Yeah, and that the people who actually liked this sort of story weren't getting it so much with the mag. I mean, they, it didn't vanish from the magazines, but it wasn't anymore the dominant sort of mode. Yeah. But on the other hand, you could in fact turn the telly on and see something which was doing the same thing, maybe a lot better. And, you know, the story that we're looking at, quite apart from the fact that I, I can think of two or three Star Trek episodes which aren't dissimilar, that yeah. they they encounter a great hole in space and some great sort of voice from a higher being yes. playing mind games with them. But it's also really quite like the story of 2001. Yeah. Um, and so, big way, yeah. Um, so that if you wanted this kind of thing... Uh, whether or not you think it's a good thing to want, if you wanted it, you didn't turn to to literature anymore. You didn't turn to written the written word anymore. You look, you turned your television on and went to the movies. Yeah, but also, this was an era when people had been in the army and their parents had been in the army and they knew people. I don't know anyone in the army now. Yeah, I, I can't think of many people I know who've had anything to do with the army. You know, yeah. it's. It's a different era now, so I don't think it's as much part of life, and it isn't. It isn't such an obvious metaphor for people to call on when they're uh, well, not even a metaphor, a very literal uh, way of representing life on a, a ship. I don't think people think about it quite the same way now. I think there's another element to the to this shift as well, which is actually that from 1960 or prior to 1960, going into space was still basically fiction. Mm-hmm. And so you could write about it and you could write speculatively about it. Um, and and it was open-ended. It was like, you know, who knows what would happen when you got up there. Yeah. But after Gagarin and after John Shepard, is he called? I can't remember the American guy. <laughs> but anyway, after the American and the, the Russians got into space, it's, it's basically a branch of realism talking about what actual space flight is like because you – you know, they come back and say, well, it's like this. And it's not. It's kind of exciting, but it's no longer romantic and wide open because essentially they're trapped in a little tin can and they're fired up in space. They don't have very much control over what happens to them. Or none, really. really yeah. hardly. Uh, well, to start with, none. I mean, later within, you know, by the time they're going to the moon, there is some steering going on. But for the first yeah. guys, they they are basically inside a cannonball, there's and a, it goes a, up. There's and it no comes down. There, there's no running uh, through corridors. Uh, <laughs> in the, in no, the, no, yeah. and there's spacewalks, and there's a little bit of sort of free play, but it is pretty boring, and it doesn't take very long. And so it's a branch of reportage. And again, I think this story is interesting because it it moves from. A, a realist mode, really, of a sort of previous era, which happens to be set in space, but could be on a submarine or could be on a battle cruiser, into it sort of passes through a portal into a mode which is which is not at all bound by the laws of physics. In fact, in fact, they spend an awful lot of time talking about 
rather bogusly about the laws of physics in the first half. And then suddenly it's kind of, it's not germane at all because everything might be happening in their heads or they, you know what they're travelling through once they go through the star. Is it is it some dream where the, the alien higher beings are just playing with their minds? I mean, do they actually even go through the star? It's not really clear that they're physically travelling once they get to the portal or do they all just fall asleep and dream the whole thing? collectively. The story, as you said, bears a lot of similarities to 2001 um, by Arthur C. Clarke and famously turned into a movie uh, by Stanley Kubrick uh, in collaboration with Arthur C. Clarke writing the the sort of story with him. Um, And uh, I mean, you could really say that 2001 is this story with some Asimov kind of wedged into the the middle of it. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Martin, uh, which one of them do you think, this story or 2001, which, which one do you think did a better if that's the right word, well, better job of the Stargate kind of idea. Well, I think there's a few things. It doesn't do much in the way of a gate specifically in 2001. But um, as Mark says, that, it's hard to know that that's a literal gate in space that they go through or anything like this. We can't really tell. I think 2001 handles a couple of aspects much better. One is that it, it gives us something a little bit more entertaining en route, uh, to getting to the the main event, the encounter with the alien artifact, uh-huh. um, and what it gives us on route is something that is another encounter with a, a very different alien intelligence in the form of Hal the computer. So there's some entertainment, and it's an entertainment that reflects on it. But also the other thing it does, uh, this story here just gives us uh, aliens who give us ultimate knowledge of some kind, and that's it. And we don't really get told anything more about it. We don't give us get a sample of the knowledge or anything like this. Now, the ending of 2001, God knows, is woolly and vague enough, but you do have the beginning where you have the artifact uh, prompting some leap in human emotion, uh, evolution from ape to human. So when they encounter it again, you've at least got some sort of metaphorical device telling you this is the kind of thing it's going to do. This story doesn't really give you that. Like I said, they basically just get an encyclopedia, and that's going to make them guardians of the galaxy somehow. So I, I think it does a couple of things better, but um, uh, Mark, I, this Mark, is not to say I think 2001 is a great film, so I don't. Mark, do you have so. anything that you want to add to that? Well, uh, I think the, the thing that's very striking about 2001 is a little bit what, what I was talking about before, that I think visually, I think Kubrick has a great visual sense, and I think he has a sense of the poetry of the visual in this particular mode of speculative writing. And in some ways, I think he's probably the person who brought that idea together in films. I mean, clearly there are science fiction films beforehand, and there are ones which have, you know, very poetic landscapes and so on. But the actual idea of travelling through space, which is in some ways quite a mundane idea, it is just a little vehicle moving through nothing but the the sense of these great bodies that are passing each other and you're passing and uh, the famous shot of the of the sun coming out from behind the i can't even remember what it is a planet or a moon or something like that it doesn't really matter what it is because the the it's to do with the kind of the colors and the play of light and things like that that was the kind of thing i think is really important in that film i think the um the philosophical dimension of it is negligible. And, you know, I mean, it's the sort of film, it's very easy to say it's science fiction for people who don't think they like science fiction, who think this must be much cleverer than 
than science fiction, which is to hand. Well, written science fiction. I mean, I I don't think I don't think Kubrick's philosophy in that film is is any more advanced than poor old Donald Malcolm's. Martin, there's a, another book about travelers meeting a superior intelligence um, called Fable 17. Yeah, written by, written by Samuel Delaney. And I think it makes for a really interesting contrast because you have the same thing of a space crew uh, going out into the galaxy and then encountering some, something alien and an alien mentality. And the interesting thing to me is that rather than just come up with something that's basically an extension of what we have on Earth, or, you know, a set of encyclopedias, basically, mm-hmm. um, what Delaney gives us is an encounter not with aliens, not with alien spacecraft or anything like this, but with an alien language. And uh, a language that, when anybody encounters it enough to learn anything of it, changes the way they think and behave, so that they effectively, in mind, become one of these aliens. And that's how the infiltration of the galaxy is happening, and that's uh-huh. the threat. Uh-huh. Um, and this interests me just on the... I mean, it's partly what Mark was saying about the uh, the step from um, spacecrafts and outer space and wow space travel and battles in space and all this into something that's more about uh, the psychology and inner space. Um, and it, it, it represents that step very well because it does start with the, the outer space stuff and moves to that much more dramatically, I think, than Malcolm manages. Um, but it's also dramatising a current philosophical idea and debate. There was the debate going on in the 60s between the older, um, well, Sapir-Whorf hypothesis of language. Okay, now, now tell us what that is. Well, Sapir-Whorf, not to be confused with um, the Klingon of the next generation's early uh, rank in the army. I don't know if it was a Sapir. Um, sorry. Um, the Sapir-Whorf, it was, uh, they were two um, linguistic philosophers from the early part of the century. Um, who developed an idea of language as something that is not some sort of neutral tool or something like this, but it's something that influences the way you're able to think and perceive things and restricts that. Now, it was very controversial. It kind of gone out of fashion by the 60s. Um, a more Chomsky idea um, of language had become more dominant than the idea of um, I mean he had this idea of like a universal grammar that everyone instinctively knows from birth and uh, we just have to plug into it and so on and that was the the more popular idea then so he was bringing in big ideas there and these these were not new ones to science fiction I mean it's not dissimilar to what uh, Orwell does with Newspeak for instance where that's deliberately using language to influence how people behave Heinlein uses it in Stranger in a Strange Land just a few years after that where the Martian language learning it actually gives you superior abilities because of it um, and there's a there's a Jack Vance novel called let me check this, The Languages of Pow or Peo or however you pronounce it um, in which a whole world it uh, deliberately creates lots of languages for people doing different kinds of jobs, different crafts and guilds and so on. Um, not just so they'll have their own secret jargon and all this stuff, but also because the language they learn will influence what they can do and how they do it. So it makes them better workers. Um, and in that story, things go horribly wrong and it all turns factional and uh, feudal and fighting and um, they have to create a new language. Uh, then to bring everyone back together again. Um, so it, it's been around. I, all I'm wanting to mention in this really is that the you have a, a Donald Malcolm story which starts off in one way um, and 
something like the same way as the Delaney. But the, the limitations of what it goes into, um, this vague notion of good and evil, which doesn't ever amount to anything really and doesn't affect the way anybody behaves after they've been through these experiences. It's a, it's a, it's a strangely complacent story, actually, <laughs> in that they encounter these higher beings, but the, the higher beings are are really like a, a slightly condescending teacher. Yeah. Who's just saying, well done, chaps. You've, you know, you solved my problem. Here's, here's your, the biggest gold star ever. And what they, it doesn't, it's not a, an encounter, as you say, it's not an encounter which in se- any sense transforms them. What it's saying is what you already have is, is what you're, is all you need. Yeah. And obviously there's some extra information which is in this, which is in this magic box, which, yeah. which will be handy. Um, but it's obvious you're not going to have very much trouble. Although he says it, yeah. will, it will be very hard to to yes. open this box, they actually open it with no problem at all. Um, and and there's a curious passage which which I think maybe one of the other bits that you've omitted because it might be quite hard to read convincingly. Where one of the characters <laughs> I'll hold my um, hand up there, yeah. becomes <laughs> uh, is announces himself as as an evangelist for man. Yeah. And I, I think that the story is is somewhat evangelism for man. He's saying like we, you know, whatever we face, we'll be up to it. I feel like the, in this period of science fiction that we're looking at in this series, uh, I think we we often encounter this in John W. Campbell and in, in other things. This this kind of boosterism for humans. Um, once you imagine a universe where there are other intelligences, suddenly there's this real patriotism about human beings that sort of uh, comes in along with a bunch of really uh, most of the time unquestioned assumptions about what that actually means um, well i mean one of the things you know i don't know i don't imagine he was the first person to invent this idea but it's a, it's a it's a multinational crew yeah yeah it's not a multi-gender crew it's not a no, multi-gender crew well. particularly yeah. although interesting there is one character called len kitten who i was vaguely <laughs> hoping was actually a kitten <laughs> but i fear I <laughs> um the tension, I think, between the sort of old wave, as it wasn't really known, and the new wave is that the new wave was, on the whole, a lot more pessimistic and cynical. Yeah. I mean, not entirely. And, for example, Delaney is not particularly pessimistic or cynical. But on the other hand, he doesn't particularly regard himself as new wave, although others do. But a, a lot of the writing was really quite dark and was saying that this, you know, this new technology is not necessarily going to do us good and and we're on the way down and this can only end badly and one of the <laughs> one of the interesting things to me about this uh about Babel 17 that you you mentioned uh yeah. Martin is that it seems like it actually finally does grapple with the idea of how different species might try to communicate with each other well that's I mean, a different difficult thing for science fiction writing convincing the alien and especially convincing the alien and vastly superior minds is an extremely difficult thing to do and i i struggle to think of old science fiction that makes even a decent stab at it um well they, they, you know. usually you just get a, a bunch of sort of wand waving and you say well here's a device that just does it and, yeah and, right. and then and then yeah. somehow they're all speaking with human values human uh language constructs i mean it, yeah. it's it's like doctor who you know the tardis has a little translation device yeah, you that's know right. it's done yeah. and in this story uh it's very interesting to me that 
good and evil appear to be these concepts that exist outside species, outside culture. They are sort of yeah. universal constants that the aliens recognize and sort of have on tap and can kind of – Yeah, as if they have a real cosmic existence. Well, I mean like, I think yeah. this is quite a religious story. Yeah. I, th- I think I, I get the sense, knowing nothing about him, whatever, but from this story I would judge that Malcolm was religious – He's not very being very specific about what the religion is, but it is some sort of Christianity. And one of the reasons for going through the portal that the two Camden two chaplains <laughs> offer is that the be- the beings on the other side might not, you know, be aware of of the message of Jesus, and so we have to go through whether we want to or not. And and if you're religious, then good and evil do exist outside human culture. Yeah, I think that. The, the other element that I was I was interested in in this, which I think is I probably the thing that's strongest about it, in the sense that it remained most vivid for me, is this thing that I w- was mentioning earlier, Samuel Delaney's idea of paraspace, and he. So t- tell us about that. What, what does he mean? What well, is Samuel it, Delaney, who wrote Babel Seventeen? Uh, yeah. what, what is what does he mean by paraspace? It, it's a it's a, a critical theory that he brought in, probably in the wake of the cyberpunk novels. And he said that very loosely you can divide the eras of science fiction into an era where the paraspace that the story enters, first of all, it's outer space. And when the new wave arrives, it's inner space. And then when cyberpunk arrives, it's cyberspace. And outer space is... It's a physical territory that we now can fly into. But when the golden age and silver age of science fiction were being written... No one had got there yet. And so it was essentially a a kind of lyrical territory where a different kind of writing and writing strategy was brought into the story to um, energise it and put you in a different emotional um, place. Um, But then as the human race got into actual real space, that that lost its uh, traction, perhaps. And the... the, uh, the new wave was very uh, it was fascinated by psychology by so inner space m- would mean uh the mind the mind loosely i mean uh, aldous huxley kind of drug explorations things to do with McLuhan and media so various aspects as well of, sorry william burroughs yeah well, and, and burroughs as well so yeah. so various aspects of kind of mind mind control not being you know what what are the um parameters of reality that kind of thing and then cyberspace is is probably more familiar actually than and doesn't really need expansion uh, although although it, it's it's interesting that what you said about um outer space suddenly at one point we'd visited it and we knew that it actually wasn't running around on the decks of giant cruisers but it was being in a tin can and now cyberspace we've all visited cyberspace too and it's well, not a glowing grid yeah. of spaces where we're all jacking in and no, sort of it's it's mu- it's less like tron than we anticipated <laughs> well that's still the virtual reality future though isn't it the cyberspace image and we keep so getting it's still, promised this it's still but just distant enough to i, still I mean i think you know delaney's yeah. position i think is that it is essentially a literary thing it's not yeah. it's not a reality it's a it's a lyrical space within writing where uh, I can't remember exactly how he puts it, but he says where, you know, you can live and love and die, but it's not real. It's not realism. And it's something which 
realistic fiction has no real access to but speculative fiction and fantasy and science fiction in different ways do that different rules apply there and the way that you the the laws of writing and the laws of narrative and the laws of description operate differently i don't think this story is is a particularly strong example of that but i think it's interesting because it is an example of that and it moves from its sort of clunky self-satisfaction which is quite a lot of it at a particular point it, it you do feel actually it sort of picks up speed what was that passage you wanted to read more well this is a passage this is almost the only passage except perhaps from the the bits where he's describing the planetscape uh where it verges on the lyrical mm-hmm. in a successful way and he, he's actually just describing uh, a photograph um or color film it is the first item on the agenda was the running of the colour film taken of the missile's journey. It was shown at normal speed, then in slow motion, and it was fascinating to watch the formation and dissipation of the fantastic shapes at the centre of the hole. Spirals, zigzags, corkscrews, in glowing ambers, bronzes, ultramarines, icy greens, vivid crimsons, lacy lemons and violet purples appeared and were gone. The shape of the missile, so overpoweringly black, seemed to drain the surrounding colours until, upon its disappearance, at the two o'clock position of the hull, everything returned to normal. That What that's doing is it's describing a missile that they shoot through the hole in the star to just kind of see what happens. See right? what happens, yeah. And I, I think it's, it's almost the only point where you feel this is a writer comfy with what he's writing. Mm. And, and I think the, the point that, in some ways, that Delaney is making and that this evidences maybe is that the whole armature of many science fiction stories is to allow you to get to do that stuff in a way which isn't purely you know experimental or just some description of kind of shapes and flow and movement which would have you know you can't get that published by itself on the whole unless you well in fact new world's a bit later and it was publishing stories by pynchon and 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 various things did start doing much more avant-garde stuff, but the only way that someone like Malcolm is is comfortable with getting into this this kind of territory is is by putting it in a really clunky story that he only just gets a little paragraph of that kind of writing in, and that I think is one of the points that Delaney is is getting at in this that this kind of story frees you up to do that kind of stuff. When you don't have the confidence or the uh, the technique to get straight into that and and cut out all the, the naval banter.
Donald Malcolm is a British author, and this is the only British author I think we're going to be covering in this series. Um, uh, yes, as far as I know, he is. He's Scottish. And the collection that I know him from is, uh, it's called Lambda One and Other Stories, selected by the editor of New Worlds, which was a British magazine. But uh-huh. certainly from the early 60s, it was also publishing American writers. It's it's an interesting collection because I do feel, even though I know in advance, so I might be just reading this into it, that there seems to be a certain kind of doerness to to the stories. And, and you know, Aldis and um, Ballard, coming after, also have a certain uh, almost measured flatness to the way they they yeah. write things. Uh, do you think there's a... Do you think there's a sort of British sensibility in in science fiction, Martin? Well, there there are all sorts of sensibilities, and there are some differences from the British. I think often the British actually don't do what Donald Malcolm does, which is the big booster for humanity thing, which reads much more like a um, I don't know a Sinclair Lewis kind of parody or something yeah, like this, yeah, yeah. Um, and therefore seems very American. But you're right that the the very basic nature of it, there's no sense of it being luxurious or anything like this or the people necessarily being um, extraordinarily larger than life figures or anything like that so yeah there is a um, almost a willful mundanity to a lot of it really which is unusual um, and certainly wouldn't find much in american space fiction a lot of the uh, mundane stuff in here has to do with technology um, they yes. they go on and on and on about these different measurements and stuff, uh, most of which I have excised judiciously from the excerpts that <laughs> you just heard. Um, but uh, tell me a little bit about this technology. Do you think he gets it right? No, it's, it's strikingly antiquated. I mean, they seem to just have optical telescopes. Um, there's one mention of but no clear use of computers. Um, there's a scout ship that goes out to film film the whole in the star from the other side. It's a film the and whole. And it it's, clear that it's, it. it's clear that it, this isn't it's, video this technology. Is cine this is film. It yeah. actually says cine film. Yeah. And it has to bring this film back then through hyperspace. They're flying through hyperspace with cine film, <laughs> which they then have to go and develop <laughs> before they can look at it. And uh, then they look at the pictures yeah. via a, what is pronounced apparently an epidioscope, which is um, a predecessor of um, overhead projectors. And to be honest, by the time this was written, it was already becoming outmoded even in schools, let alone in science establishments. And uh, it's extraordinarily banal and dated-looking technology. Maybe the golden box that they get has a little section about video cameras. (laughs) Well, I know part of this is wanting to make you believe in the ordinary life on the spaceship so you put stuff in there that you don't ask people to believe too many fantastic things at once and you've got this ridiculous um, amazing toroid star with a gateway to some other spatial area or something like that Actually, whatever that, the hell it yeah, is. that reminds me i have to read this little section just from the introduction um beyond the reach of storms by donald malcolm has that authentic astronomical ring which only comes from a writer of authority on such a subject have you ever heard of a donut-ringed sun before? Though rare, they are known to astronomers. Um, well, we think though rare, ones. they are not, as far <laughs> as I know, known to astronomers. I did. I hunted for toroid stars on the internet and did find some some papers about sort of astrophysical aspects of them. But as far as I know, they are purely kind of abstract 
uh, discussions of what how they would work if they existed, and they they seem to involve you know black holes and and other stretches there's more than one star and that's bending the star out you know etc so there aren't any donut stars just sitting there waiting for you to go through the middle of them <laughs> as uh, as john carnell seems the, to the science generally such a killjoy mark <laughs> Sorry. The, the science generally is a little bit of a problem here because you've got the very old-fashioned stuff which already looked outmoded in the 60s you've got hyperspace which is mentioned and we kind of know what that is in science fiction but it doesn't say any more yeah, than that it's the way it. to get to places really yes. quickly which would actually take a really long time yes, and that's be right. boring and everyone um, would be dead but and they've got this <laughs> they've got this hole in the star where they see different stars through it and um there's a bit of speculation in the story about, well, are we seeing uh, stars in a distant galaxy or in a parallel universe? What's going on here? Oh, well, yeah, the someone says, is, yeah, Dr. Drake says, um, I can't go into the reasons here, but I think the field is spatial, not dimensional. And that's kind of the end of that debate. <laughs> yes, he, what he, he means get, is that I, I, it's I, not stars in a different time. It's stars in a different space. But he can't go into the reasons yes, here. That's well, right. He that's a throw big, us a bone. Because they know, go into quite a lot of here. other details. That's a clue. <laughs> Yeah, there is immense detail, a lot of it. The number of measurements of the hole in the star. Mm. Now it's like, no, but although, to be honest, I, I don't particularly object to it. I think that kind of... I, I think <laughs> it's the case in some sorts of story that you have this this strange balance between quite pragmatic and mundane activity, which you know, presumably on a spaceship is going to be somewhat scientific and things which are obviously impossible. Well, they are, a, they are a survey crew. It's never said exactly what they're surveying yeah, or so why they're... Yeah, so presumably they have taking measurements and sort of noting down what's going on is, is part of their job. And you have to give some sort of sense of that. And yeah. in principle, it does ground you in the story. I mean, yeah. it's a technique for doing that, yeah. whether or not this... I, I, I think it, this, this is a strangely unbalanced story in that you get all of the, this very sort of finicky stuff up front. And then right at the back, you get all of the kind of wacky stuff. They're, they're not bonded together in the way it's structured. But that, those two elements are you know, apparent in, I mean, for example, we've been talking about Delaney. A lot of his yeah, stories are absolutely. full. Of, he, he's someone who's very interested in how, how you use detail to anchor the story in order to kind of fly off to wherever you want to take it. And... Um, and there are still writers out there uh, using space and the details of space travel uh, to investigate what Delaney called paraspace, even even though it's mm -hmm. gone by the wayside in, in some ways, as, as we've said. Um, well, it, 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 the space novels still exist. So, so how, do they, to, how do they do this? Well, you have to do it a bit differently. As Mark says, it's, it's become maybe not banal and mundane it's not like most of us have been in space but we kind of know what it's like now um so you have to go rather farther than zooming off to mars because we know that's like you say a tin can and it's all controlled by computers here and you're just told what to do um and mostly you have to go a lot farther you can't just say all right we're going to the next star instead you've got to come up with new ways of doing it and i think what's happened in science fiction that strand of science fiction i think has mutated into something that deals on a much huger scale. So you'll have stories by Michael Coney or Robert Reed um, or even Ian M. Manx um, that deal on a scale of millions of years and galaxy-wide things and uh, genuinely very alien races. And I think people have got rather better at imagining that in recent decades than they ever used to be. There, so there's a, there's a book that my father 
always recommended to me, which in fact I've shamefully never read, which is Olaf Stapleton's First and Last Last Men, which is from the late late 30s, I would think. And that is is basically a sort of, it's kind of Darwinian Marxist (laughs) speculation about where the human race will end up. And it, 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 it begins right at the beginning on earth and is sort of the backstory and then just goes out to the stars out to the galaxies and and becomes this sort of huge scope yeah story that's right and that was like a more ambitious version of the shape of things to come or something yes i mean there's always been strands that have tried to do these different things be more ambitious i mean even going back to the time machine and things like this there's an attempt to do and there's a there's thing, a bit right at the end of that, isn't there, with the sort of stars crashing and things like that? Isn't there a little <laughs> passage where where the Earth's I coming read to it pieces? Since I was a kid, I don't remember. No, I remember right. It's a long time ago. <laughs> but yeah, there are these attempts to. I think it's been more important to get more ambitious because you can't do what you were saying about making it a poetic space that you can do all kinds of different things in unless you take it a long way from what we already know. And we already know the the beginnings, the basics of of space travel, and it's not very lyrical. Yes, it's, so. it's, it's a bit crappy. Yes. Mark, do you have this paragraph of uh, from... An editorial he wrote in New yeah. Worlds in 63, was it? Yeah, there's very little information about Don Malcolm out there, but he did write a guest editorial for New Worlds magazine number 128 in March 1963, which is about the time that this story yeah, is Yeah, I, I imagine Carnell was still... Let me just read it, and you guys tell me what you think. What science fiction doesn't offer, uh, says... Um, says Donald Malcolm, or if it does in angstrom-sized doses, is Spillane-like violence, green-like maudlin religion, Graham Green, I guess he's talking about, sex striptease animated foundation garment sagas, <laughs> fill this one in yourself, he says, and wa-slash-Delaney-like homosexuality. It seems to be socially smart to have practitioners of the latter perversion littering modern novels. Science fiction ignores these, quote, facts of life, unquote, to its everlasting credit, he says. Writers and editors would be a poor lot indeed if they resorted to and condoned the use of themes from the gutter. There is surely much in man that is worth writing about. In science fiction, man has stature, a maturity of sorts. He doesn't have to spend most of the story crawling his way out of a mire of vice. That sounds so much like the last gasp of the the Campbell school, the old school of science fiction, and before. More well, yeah, and it also uh, it, it sounds to me. I mean, you probably know this. There's the in the back of um, what's the what's the Burroughs, the famous Burroughs novel that has Naked Lunch. Or yeah, the Naked it? Lunch has the the edition that everyone reads has uh, endless editorial arguments and letters to the editor about right. what um, essentially. <laughs> Along those lines, I, yes. I slightly suspect that Malcolm had tried to plough his way through the naked lunch, and that's what he's re- reacting against. Incidentally, the Delaney he mentions there is not, not Samuel, Samuel Delaney, Delaney right. even though Samuel Delaney is gay. Yeah. He was not known to be gay at that point when it was still. He was not know, known at that point. Really, he was barely known at that point, although he'd published yeah. several novels, um, but they weren't, you know, big sellers. Um, and it wasn't uh, – it was neither popular nor profitable to be gay at that point. Um, and he's actually almost certainly talking about Sheila Delaney who who wrote the play A Taste of Honey, which was a f- uh-huh. also a film and has an unmarried mother and a gay character who live together and argue the whole time. And I'm sure that's what he's actually talking about. But it's a curious little 
And to be fair, he may have changed his mind. About yeah, no, no, he may then. he may well have got on board with where where the uh, the new wave went. This is you know, but it's I think it's interesting that that he what he is keen on in science fiction is that it yeah as he said does he say uncluttered by or unlittered by mm. this this that it, it escapes the stuff which which lots of people were you know want wanted were. We're keen to find in writing. Thank you, Martin Skidmore and Mark Sinker. Next week, we'll be discussing The Red Brain by Donald Wandre. Uh, and our guest will be Dave Queen. Thanks very much for listening.